Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we tell the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today, we're going to talk about the movie I, Tanya, the story of Tanya Harding, the figure skater, the guy she loves, the guy who thinks he's a counterintelligence expert, and the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. My guest for today's episode is my frequent collaborator, John Helix, a local musician in the San Diego area. Find him on Facebook and Twitter at John Helix Official. We also have Dawn and Diana who will join us to talk about I, Tanya. Join us as we play a couple of games. First, we're going to play Can You Guess the Creative License in This Scene? And then we're going to play a round of Is the Sports Writer Male or Female? Listen and play along with us. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to one of the cities that listens to this podcast, Paris, France. As tempted as I may be to do a bad French accent at this time, I'm going to resist and just say to the people of Paris, thank you for listening. I've been to Paris, and it's a beautiful city full of beautiful art and beautiful architecture. With the recent protests against racism that are taking place there, I'm also going to say that it's a city filled with beautiful people. Keep doing what you're doing over there. We're going to keep it up on this side. And maybe, just maybe, we can move the needle on equality and unity in this world. I, Tanya currently has a 7.5 out of 10 rating on the Internet Movie Database and an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Alice and Janney won the Golden Globe and the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her role as Lavana Harding. Margot Robbie won the Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts International Awards, also known as the ACTA, for Best Actress and was nominated for an Academy Award. How is I, Tanya as a movie? And how is it as a medium to document the story of Tanya Harding? We will rate the movie as entertainment and as fact, and give a score at the end of the episode. There will be spoilers in the discussion. If you're ready, let's get started. If not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. So you're saying you can identify quite a bit with the character of Tanya Harding in I, Tanya. Absolutely. I could identify with the visceral, the, the feeling of it, not the um, logic. <laughs> and, and what feeling is that? I grew up middle-class suburb. I mean, I grew up middle-class too. <laughs> so what is this feeling like if you had to describe it? Uh, what I would say is it's a feeling of not being, um, a feeling of being looked down upon. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, it's an anger that comes with it. A feeling of being less than. Very much. Need to rebel? Yeah, absolutely. But a need, but there's very specific targets of your rebellion. It's those who are looking down on you, right? Whether it's money, whether it's culture, whether it's class, whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. Was anyone else feeling that way? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There. I mean, there's a way that people who are either moneyed or see themselves as moneyed or see themselves as a certain part of white culture they tend to look down on anyone who does not have 
access to those things mm -hmm. or who does not aspire to those specific things. So even when Tanya wanted to skate to pop music or heavy metal instead of classical music, mm -hmm. it creates such an uproar and that shit just boils my veins. Okay, well, we're going to have a deeper discussion about that. <laughs> later on because there is a lot to chew on with it and there's a lot of reaction that I found in my research regarding Tanya Harding oh, and that specific topic. But let's go ahead and just jump into the film plot so everyone knows what we're talking about. We're talking about the movie I, Tanya, which stars Margot Robbie as Tanya Harding and stars Allison Janney as her mother, Lavana Harding. And in this movie, Tanya Harding is growing up in Portland, Oregon, and is forced to skate at the age of four by her abusive mother, Lavana Golden. Her parents take her out of school to focus on her skating career under the coaching of Diane Rawlinson. It's obvious that Tanya has talent, but she makes her own costumes, has rural, a.k.a. white trash pedigree. She chooses unconventional music and just cannot catch a break from the skating world. She starts dating 18-year-old Jeff Galuli when she was 15 by the way, is when they started dating. Was it just me, or did anyone else have a problem accepting her as a 15-year-old in that scene? I thought she looked 15. You thought so? I, I mean, I thought maybe an older 15, but I I mean, has anybody seen 15-year-olds these days? I mean, I feel like uh, they, they, they don't quite look 15. And I feel like I can't answer that question without getting into trouble. <laughs> it, might, it might just be me. It might just be me. <laughs> Maybe, you know why I did live in Los Angeles for a while, so I think that might have a lot to do with it. I don't really know. Okay. I can see that. I'll leave it to both of you to discuss 15-year-olds. <laughs> I had a problem with the mustache, you know. Not on time. I'm talking about that. <laughs> but Galuli's mustache? Boy, that was a creeper signal. Oh, my God. It was awful. Well, what about Sean's mustache, too? <laughs> He's his own cat form. <laughs> My God. So it's obvious Tanya has talent. She starts dating 18-year-old Jeff Galuli. They marry, and Jeff becomes abusive. Lavana tells Tanya she shouldn't put up with the treatment, and I think that's about the time she tossed the knife that landed into her arm. Tanya has a dispute with Diane, fires her, hires Dodie Teachman as her new coach. She moves out of the house with Jeff and becomes the first female figure skater to complete two triple axle jumps in competition. She fails to stick her landings in the 1992 Winter Olympics and finishes fourth. Tanya moves back in with Jeff and becomes a waitress. Diane convinces her to train for the 1994 Winter Olympics. And during the Northwest Pacific Regional Championships, Tanya receives a death threat and refuses to compete. Jeff realizes that he can sabotage Tanya's competition using the same method and tells his friend Sean Eckhart, which I have to say, Sean Eckhart is played by Paul Walter Hauser. He is incredible. Fabulous. I love him as Sean Eckhart. I love how he did most of his lines with his eyes closed. He opens the movie, correct? If, is uh, that correct? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a guy that's got some issues going on. Oh, my God. Jeff realizes he can sabotage Tanya's competition using the same method of calling in a death threat and tells his friend Sean Eckhart to send death threats to Nancy Kerrigan. Tanya is aware of the plan and makes the phone call to find out Kerrigan's training arena and practice times. Eckhart hires goons to attack Kerrigan in Detroit. 
the henchmen whack Kerrigan's knee, and she is unable to compete in the national competition the next day. The goons are arrested. Eckhart brags about the incident, and when the FBI find him, he blames Jeff. Tanya qualifies for the Olympics, but is guilty by association, so she goes to the FBI and tells them what Jeff and Eckhart did. They show her statement to Jeff, who confronts Tanya, and she leaves him for good. Lavanya visits Tanya and is nice to her, which makes Tanya suspicious. She finds out that Lavanya is wearing a wire and throws her out. The hearing for all of this is postponed until after the Olympics, and at the Olympics, Tanya finishes eighth, and Kerrigan takes the silver medal. Tanya avoided jail time, but she's banished from competitive figure skating for life. Go figure, trying to injure a competitor of yours, get you banished from the sport. Jeff changes his name, marries, opens a salon, divorces, and remarries. Lavana moved to Washington State and has no contact with Tanya. Tanya took up professional boxing, and she became a landscaper, a painter, and a deck builder. And she currently lives happily with her son and her third husband. What did you think of it? I thought it was fabulous. I thought it was a fabulous uh, character portrait, and... I thought it was really emotional, and I, I felt like, I mean, it was, it's was it been a while since I've even encountered that story. Was it 90, 93 when it happened? When was 92. It? 92. So, you know, my impressions have always just been, you know, I was, what, 12? So I don't, I don't know what was going on. No, correction, 94. 94. Yeah, it okay, was 94 so was, when yeah. the assault happened. Yeah. Um, so this was kind of like coming to it through the film, right, with having some kind of background news story i felt a lot of a sympathy for tanya harding that's that was the primary thing that the movie did to me and, and it, yeah. it made me it gave me the sense just as a that she wanted something but was subject to forces you know with just manipulative forces that were too much for her but that she had the drive to be great and the, the talent to be great and just that Again, it's that being told you can't do it and being told that you're not good enough or mm -hmm. being told that you're trashy or you're ugly or you're whatever it is. Yeah. It was, for me, it was an incredibly sympathetic picture or portrait. She just didn't fit the mold that they wanted her to fit, it seems like. So mm -hmm. no matter how good she was, even when she was better, she didn't get the break because she wasn't America's next door wholesome girl. That's what it seemed like the uh, the move. I don't know a lot about the actual facts of the story, and even when I started watching the movie, I thought that Tanya herself had uh, been the been the cause of the incident with the with Kerrigan's knee. Okay. So when I watched the movie, I was I said, uh, "Wait, I thought it was she actually did it." And then I and then I found out that she wasn't the one that actually perform the incident while watching this movie okay yeah i felt i felt much the same way i, I have a soft spot for anyone who's told they're less than just because of who they are no. whether it be lgbt whether it be immigrants who are trying to run away from being killed where they live and it's just for, for me it's a soft spot so it was different to look at it through this type of lens which was just simply class 
it, it mm. this was really a class issue that was taking place. I'd say class and gender too, though. I mean, there's definitely there. I think there's an added element. Gender how? I think that if you, I don't know. If they, it seems like if you would take, I don't think the same expectations of of aesthetics or beauty are placed on a 15 year old guy or a 15 year old oh. kid than a than a 15 year old uh, figure skater girl. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't. I don't think. I think she has a lot of aesthetic uh to overcome that wouldn't be i don't think that would be placed on a on a male in this to the same extent in terms of body image and hair and i mean all of that i even think her sense of competition oh god yeah oh yeah if if that's masculine that's masculine masculine. men compete like that boys compete like that wait wait girls don't compete like that i don't quite understand what you're saying saying can you explain it in maybe like a different way so i understand if you don't mind girls aren't expected to be that aggressive they're expected to not have aspirations that cause them to be aggressive in the pursuit and if it had been a 15 year old boy I don't think people would have looked down on him as much. He would have been a badass. That's yeah. the, right. And nobody, yeah. nobody wants a badass fifteen-year-old girl because that's, I mean, that's boys, all kinds boy, of trouble. Boys right? will be boys. Boys will be boys. So yeah. essentially, what you're saying, had I Tanya been reversed and it would have been a male, you don't think that he would have had the same pressures coming from that background I in think, figure skating? I'm I saying. think. So, I think not to the degree. Not to the degree. I think I'd... it would have been. I think it would have been much less. I think that still, like if you know, there would have been elements of grace that had into, to come into play. But I think it's much more. There's much more pressure on a on a female figure skater. I think I disagree. I think that had the roles of a female male been reversed, I feel like a male would have had a hard time as well. That being said, maybe not as much of a hard time. But I still think you, in a person in that situation, may have. Is it's the presentation. I mean, a figure skater that's a male coming up with his own costumes, not being from the upper class, I feel like he would have had a, a hard time. I, I don't know if there's anybody out there that actually is in that situation. Probably not as much as Tanya, but I, 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 I slightly agree. Disagree. I slightly disagree with that. Although I do agree that maybe not as much, but I think definitely it, it would have been similar i mean who's to know i uh, i would like to look into that i really thought the tone of this film was something that was really different from other biopics i've seen because uh, i felt what they did was they almost came up to the edge of parody Mm -hmm. but they also treated the topic seriously and and it was almost I, i felt that if they had presented it head on like you would in a standard biopic it might not have played as well because this whole thing is so ridiculous. It, it is just so ridiculous when you look at it. And when you look at what happened, which is uh, he's, he's hired to send threatening letters. It escalates into whacking Nancy Kerrigan. And it, it was just an interesting tone where I felt had they gone just one step further they would have been making fun of Jeff and Tanya and Sean. Yeah. But I don't think they wound up reaching that point just because the whole thing's so ridiculous in the first place. I mean, I, what what was the audience for this movie? Do, it, do you think that it was people who had prior knowledge 
I think people who had prior knowledge or were um, around and alive for it. Is it yeah. I mean, why does the story need to be retold? I guess is the is the question. I don't know. That is a good question. Who actually wrote the script? Do, do you know? Do you ever know who wrote the script or any anything about the person that wrote the script and like what other kind of uh, films they may have made? Maybe maybe they just did biopics. I, I mean, I don't know. Well, I happen to have here from Wikipedia, screenwriter Stephen Rogers was inspired to write the film after watching a documentary about ice skating, which mentioned Tanya Harding, which I thought that was interesting in I Tanya too because. What they do is they really get away from factual elements in a way because they frame the whole movie using the documentary footage, which the documentary footage for I, Tanya is really from a documentary. So they redid the documentary footage. Lavana really did have a parrot on her shoulder in the documentary as well. Yeah, we see that at the very end. Yeah, I, so, I, it made me laugh because I thought it was I thought it was one of those things that they just did for the film. But when I actually saw the parrot and the and her uh, her ensemble was very much the same way that that made me laugh. I think in part it was made. Maybe it wasn't necessary to make it, but it was made in part. Because there's such a different context for this kind of behavior and looking at people who come from backgrounds that are in some way disenfranchised, you know, back then and even today to a certain extent, the idea is always, well, you're always fully responsible for everything that has happened to you and everything that you have done, no matter how young you are. And not that she's not responsible for the things that she did, but we tended more back in the 90s when all this was happening to simply assume that things happened in vacuums and this gave a portrayal of people who were sympathetic and had backgrounds that explained things and I think that this movie gives the opportunity for people to look at the difference between an explanation a reason and an excuse and to determine whether or not they find sympathy in the characters whether they find reasons for what happened and it comes with an understanding that just because they're providing explanations of things that doesn't necessarily mean that anyone's looking to excuse what happened Mm -hmm. well that's a good point so on a scale of one to four stars diana what would you give i tanya as a movie a solid 3.4 3.4 dogs as a movie, mm, 3.5. 3.5. John? I'm hanging 3.5. Uh, I'm 3.5 as well. Oh, I'm, I'm trailing, can, trailing behind Can here. we bump you up a tenth of a point? Outlier. I'm sorry, no. You're I, hanging I, at 3.4. I stand 4. at 3.4. <laughs> can I get a tenth? It, it, it felt like a 3.4. I can't help it. I could lie and say 3.5. It felt, just felt like You're 3.4. Actually Off the ice. <laughs> get the Zamboni. <laughs> So you're actually going to make me shave a little sliver off of my star graphic? I'm not going to make you do anything. <laughs> That's just where I stand. <laughs> all right. So we all like the movie I, Tanya, And we're going to move on to taking a look at the facts now. And in this portion of the podcast, we will talk about how facts were presented in the film and the historical and factual accuracy of each item. At the end, we're each going to give it a letter grade for truthfulness. And we'll average that all together. And I think the first thing we need to look at is we need to look at the triple axle. Because 
I don't think people really understand what we're talking about when we talk about the triple axel. And what was in the movie was that Tanya Harding was the first American woman to land the triple axel in competition. Well, the truth is, she was the first American woman to land the triple axel in competition. Well, you should know that the axel in triple axel is capitalized. And the reason why is because it's named after its creator, and that would be Axel Paulson, who created the move and was the first person to perform it in competition in 1882 in the first figure skating competition that took place. It's been with figure skating uh, professional competition since the very beginning. And keep in mind, we're talking a single axle. We're talking just one turn here. It's a difficult jump to perform because it is the only jump in figure skating which begins with the skater moving forward. By the early 1920s, Sonia Henney became the first woman to land the axle in competition. It wasn't until 1948, 66 years after Axel Paulson introduced the single axle, that Dick Buttons was the first skater to perform a double axle in competition. The first woman to perform a double axle was American Carol Heiss in 1953. According to the New York Times, the triple axle has become more common for male skaters to perform. And the first female skater to complete a triple axle was Japanese skater Midori Ito at the 1989 World Championships. And one of the reasons why it's mainly male skaters who do this is because you need a lot of strength from your legs in order to get the height required to do the rotations. And that's where Tanya Harding was really different from other female skaters, is she was very athletic in that regard and in that strength, but that's also what kind of knocked her down on points, which we talked about a little earlier, on the feminine side and skating in a, in a more graceful way. After she did that first triple axel, it kind of became her thing that year. The next month, she landed it at the World Figure Skating Championships in Munich to become the first American woman to complete a triple axel at an international event. That same year, the fall 1991 Skate America, she had three more triple axel firsts, becoming the first woman to complete one in the short program, the first to execute two in a single competition, and the first to execute a triple axel combined with a double toe loop. That's a lot of firsts. That's a lot <laughs> of firsts, yes. And the movie doesn't even mention those. Uh, but I think that's because people don't understand how difficult a triple axel really is. It was another 10 years before another female skater attempted to do the triple axel. As of 2019, 11 women have successfully completed the triple axel in competition. And at the time this movie was filmed, there were two women in the world who could do a triple axel, and they reached out to them to try to get them to do it for the movie, but they were in training and did not want to take a chance of injuring themselves. Mm, I feel like that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems to me, at least if I were in Tanya's shoes, that that triple axel would be just is incredibly layered fuck you to all of these people because the only reason she can do this or the reason that it stated that she can do this is because she is so athletic it's not about her grace it's about her ability to get her ass up off the floor 
and into the air long enough to do this. Yep. The fact that she was the only one who was able to do it, and the fact that she did it multiple times. Definitely. Yeah. But Definitely. I, I would, I would even say though that 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 figures even more heavily into the discussion of gender because the notion of grace being divorced from athletic movement is entirely applied to females. It is not applied to males. We talk about it all the time with men. football, basketball, incredibly violent movements that are that require so much strength, but they're executed beautifully. Oh, it's graceful. And then if a woman does it, it's too masculine. It's too, right? It's The, the grace is removed. It's, yeah. It, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Tanya Harding's talent because she was talented, but she wasn't able to move up in the ranks of U.S. Figure Skating Association because of her background. Poor with homemade costumes, her musical choices for her programs went against the expectations of the skating world. Rock and roll and hip-hop music was really reserved for exhibitions that were taking place, not for competitions. So you would frequently see the where they could just break free and go freestyle and use whatever music they wanted to in an exhibition. But in the competition, no, it was film scores, it was classical music, nothing like using ZZ Top sleeping bag. So what really happened? Hardy came from a blue-collar upbringing. She did have homemade costumes, and her mother really made her wear it to school with a tiara so they could get the school picture with it to reuse it. It was also true that a judge told her that if she wears a homemade costume again to a U.S. championship, she won't be coming back. Harding replied in much the same way she did in the film, minus the suck my dick line. But Tanya Harding did say she wishes she would have said it. I wish she would have said it as well. (laughs) Her background was reflected in her choice of music for her programs. In the film, her triple axel was done to ZZ Top's sleeping bag. What the movie doesn't show is that she would put together an eclectic mix of music for her programs. The program that had her first triple axel included the theme from Tim Burton's Batman. That was followed by an instrumental of Send in the Clowns. Consider this. Is she making a Joker reference here with her choice of music? Batman and Send in the Clowns? When was that Batman? Uh, Batman came out in 89. The Keaton, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was the Danny Elfman score. Yeah. So it was that into a a musical version or instrumental version of Send in the Clowns, which then went into an instrumental version of Wild Thing by Tone Loke. No, I would say she had an almost sardonic aesthetic. She had a very good sense of what she wanted to present and how she wanted to be received. And she wasn't going to compromise on those things. And right. I appreciate that. And the program where she did use ZZ Top's Sleeping Bag, the movie, the two pieces of music that preceded Sleeping Bag, was first a theme from Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, and then Gatto Barbieri's Europa. Wow. So you're saying Tanya Harding had a major social conscience here. That's fabulous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very interesting what can be revealed just by choices of music. Yeah. 
Now, do we know that she chose these songs, or was she influenced by her coaches? Is that a... May have been a little column A, a little of column B, okay. because uh, uh, there is it is on record that Diane did not like her unconventional choices in music, so I would imagine there was probably some compromise taking place there. Or, it, or she just said, fuck it. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe fuck it. Maybe that's one of the things that made Diane hand her off. That's true, which we didn't see, but mm-hmm. it, it makes it more interesting. There's an amazing uh, amount of self-consciousness for someone who grows up in that world and is competing at 15, wouldn't you say? Well, why do you say that? I'm just thinking of myself at 15. If I, if I were to put together music that was to say, fuck you to everybody who'd ever told me you can't do this or you can't do that, I don't, I don't even think the thought would have occurred to me. It might have been intuitive. Yeah, not to mention the abuse that's shown in the movie as she's growing up was real. There were people who were at the ice rink when she was young who did see Lavana hidden her with a hairbrush. Those things were really happening. So to come out of that background and, and still have that fuck you attitude, but to be able to apply it as well and to use your talent with it, that's the thing. Because it wasn't just a fuck you that was rebellious and dragging her down. Yeah. It was a fuck you that should have been raising her higher. And it's it, the movie shows that she wasn't able to raise higher just because of that perception of who she was. But you talked about gender and we talked about class. What we didn't talk about yet regarding that is sponsorships. Hmm. Kerrigan got Campbell's soup. <laughs> I was just trying to imagine Tanya Harding on the. <laughs> okay, so there we go. So that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Right? Can you imagine Tanya Harden on the Wheaties box? Yes. Yes? Yes, I, I can mean, imagine her on the Wheaties box. You... I cannot imagine her in a Campbell's Soup commercial. <laughs> uh, musical choices aside, the film shows that she could not have broken through whatever you want to call the ceiling in U.S. skating. Nancy Kerrigan fit the mold, and strangely... When Kerrigan was attacked, while Kerrigan was the face of Campbell Soup, Campbell Soup sales skyrocketed. I'm sure after her attack. I'm sure they did. No, uh, no press is bad press, right? That, uh, exactly. No such thing as bad publicity. Mm-hmm. Now, in my research, I found two sports columnists who have no sympathy for Tanya Harding at all. Should Should I mention if they're male or female before we discuss it? Do you I, guys want I to guess? Really relevant, but I, I mean. Well, John had made the comment about gender. Should we? Should tell I us after. T- tell you. I, I, Let's I see if we can guess. I think I'll have you guess. The first article is titled "Tanya Harding movie wants your sympathy, but let's not forget the facts." Male. And this. <laughs> And this author makes the argument that U.S. skating officials sent her to not one Olympics but to two, and that she squandered all the opportunities that were given to her. Now, here's the thing. Harding, like all the other skaters at this time, had a unique opportunity because the U.S. Olympic Committee decided to separate the Summer and Winter Games. Summer and Winter Games used to take place in the same year, which meant four years later, there's another Summer and Winter Games. But when they separated them, you had a Winter Games in 1992, And then two years later in 1994, you had another Winter Games, which means these skaters 
had the opportunity, which hadn't come before, to compete in two Olympics while they're still in their prime. Four years is a long time in athletics. Mm -hmm. So to be able to compete twice in the Olympics in two years was a massive opportunity. And this author says that she squandered it. Where Harding also had an opportunity is that at the same time, the sport did away with what were called compulsory school figures. Things like tracing figure eights having to be part of your program. The Skating Association decided to ditch that and focus more on jumping. And if anything was in Harding's wheelhouse, it was jumping. She definitely had the advantage on that over other skaters. Because her skating was athletic and strong, it wasn't feminine and soft. At the 1992 athletic trials, she was overweight and out of shape, but she still got a place on the Olympic team. This is all still coming from this particular author. She fired her coach, had Jeff Galuli help train her when she did train, and still got on the 1994 Olympic team during the Harding-Kerrigan debacle. And the famous problem with her skates in Lillehammer, when we all know the image of her having her skate up on the judge's uh, podium there, Mm -hmm. that happened entirely because she didn't pack extra laces. That's why. It wasn't a malfunction. It was just she didn't pack extra laces. Now, that surprised me when it happened that they gave her another chance. Mm -hmm. Because you're supposed to be prepared, and you're not supposed to get an extra chance to go out on the ice. And given the way they had treated her before, it seemed like the perfect way to disqualify her and get her out of their hair. This author does not address anything seen in the movie. Doesn't address the comments by the judges. Uh, doesn't address the musical choices working against Harding. Those are the items that this author, who, by the way, followed Harding up in Oregon as a reporter, this is what she mentions as the reasons why we should not have sympathy. This is what she mentions? I was going to say, it's, I, a, it's a woman for sure. Were you I, thinking it's a woman? Female. I thought yeah. the set, the, halfway through, I was like, okay, okay. You, you thought female. What were you thinking? Still male. <laughs> so, okay, I blew it. Female. But we have another author, and I will not give this person's gender. But this comes from an article titled, I Nauseated. The male. The Oregonian's ex-sports columnist nails what the Tanya Harding movie gets wrong. And I'm going to read directly from the article. It's difficult to see Harding on red carpets and magazine covers fawned over by movie stars and filmgoers who condemn the media for being unfair to poor little Tanya. Male. Male. But we live in a world where people line up for selfies with O.J. Simpson and heavyweight rapist Mike Tyson. Oh, give me a fucking Where vaccines are said to be harmful for children and global warming is a hoax. And where the president tells whopper lies several times a day. This must be now. Why shouldn't Tanya Harding be a new folk hero? Red herring, irrelevant, uh, all, come on. That's not an argument. Okay, male or female? Male. Male. Male or female? Male. Male or female? Female. Female. Damn! (laughs) Female. Of course. In fact, I had to research it because the author's name is G.E. Vader. And 
when they go by initials, it could go either way. But yeah, I had to look up that GE Vader is female. But what do you think of that? Because the first thing I think is both of these columnists followed Tanya Harding throughout the whole thing. They also say she changed her story multiple times, that she's... And I'm wondering, is this... Do these columnists have a situation where it's a familiarity breeds contempt rather than looking at the situation? Or is it something else? I think they're the first one that you read, the first three or four lines were really condescending. The opportunities that were given to her, she was allowed to. That sounded to me like a columnist who was very well versed in the kind of mores of the skating world and was interested in protecting those that, that class classiness or the, the grace of the skating world. It sounds like it was an argument against convention uh, the, or, you know, bucking convention. It didn't sound, and it was super condescending. Mm-hmm. She, these opportunities were given to her. Yeah. She didn't earn them. She didn't skate for them. But, yeah. yeah. Well, and especially knowing that they gave Kerrigan Michelle Kwan's slot. Tanya Harding earned her space there. Mm-hmm. She earned every moment there. What she did with it was up to her, but that was not given to her. If anyone it was given to, it was given to Nancy Kerrigan. And this this reporter obviously has a beef with this, and I think a lot of it does go back to that idea of this person dares to book convention, and it's always good to have someone who bucks convention who could do really well, and you see them fall, and now they have someone to you know, place their foot upon their neck. Yeah, and not to say that Tanya Harding didn't do her own things that could work against her. She smoked and she was asthmatic, probably not the greatest thing to do when you're an athlete. Um, she she didn't plan ahead, as in not packing an extra pair of laces and leading to all of that drama. As talented as she was, it, if she's showing up overweight and out of practice and still making the Olympic team... Imagine if she showed up ready. So, sorry, isn't this a common occurrence with other sports? Though, don't men typically show up for football? Right? They don't. They they put on a lot of weight and it's all muscle, and then it all turns to fat while they're gone. Right? They show up fat and out of shape, and camp is when they get back into shape. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's an it's another one of those things, and maybe it's not just gender. Maybe it's part of this skating world in contrast with others. But if these are sports writers, they know this. This just feels like an, another opportunity to shame for the sake and pleasure of it. And I just read I read a, an article a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, Mike Tyson's been making a reemergence into the kind of mainstream nowadays, and he's being redefined and recontextualized. And he's a, a hero again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He has people. <laughs> he has people. Yes. Yes. No, Sounds but, like he has people. But yeah. it's just interesting because it was a sports writer. And the sports writers, and I mean, I can just imagine that this were applied to Tanya Harding. The sports writers were all very impressed that Mike Tyson had smoked weed before one of his fights. Mm. And he still kicked the shit out of the other guy. Okay. And they were all very impressed. Look at his skill. Look at his So this seems like a massive double standard. And so... Sh- Tanya, Tanya shows up overweight and it's or out of shape and it's she's squandering she's her squandering opportunities. her opportunities. But Tyson shows up and he's high as a kite and 
Yeah, go for it. Look Good how, on you. Look, what a great athlete. Look, Even though, yeah. you know. Yeah. Look how great he is. Yeah. Impaired. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Wow. Well, now we get to what's commonly referred to as the incident. But I'm going to refer to it as the assault on Nancy Kerrigan. Because that's what it is. Let's call it what it is. Uh, I mean... And I think even more than Tanya Harding, I feel sympathy for Nancy Kerrigan, who is associated with this not by any choice of her own. She was dragged into this ridiculous situation. And let's take a look at what happened. And what I'm going to say from the plot of the movie is going to involve one and only one piece of creative license from the filmmakers. I want you to be able to identify which piece of what I read is the creative license? Jeff Galuli hires Sean Eckhart to make some phone calls to Nancy Kerrigan to scare her from competing and to give Tanya Harding the edge in the upcoming competition. Sean takes it on himself to hire two goons to attack Kerrigan. One of the goons, Shane Stant, drives to Massachusetts, where he moved his car every 15 minutes to avoid suspicion. They follow her to where she is competing in Detroit. Stant then drives to Detroit, where he used a tactical-style baton to hit Kerrigan on the knee. He tries to exit a locked glass door, headbutts the glass to get out, tackles a guy on the sidewalk, <laughs> and jumps into <laughs> and jumps into his car to escape. Sean Eckhart starts bragging about having planned the attack, which gets the attention of the FBI, who show up and investigate. Harding is found guilty of conspiracy to hinder the prosecution, a felony, and is banned from skating for life. Now, in that description of what happened in the movie I, Tanya, there is one piece of creative license taken by the filmmakers. John, can you identify what the creative license is? I gotta go with the head through the glass. Head through the glass, Diana. I have to second that motion. I've I've uh, actually thrown a rock through my front car window, and it's I'm that's a whole nother story. But I, I I would have a really hard time believing that one. And Don, I think it was the part where he got into his car after he did it. The piece of creative license is he would move his car every 30 minutes to oh, avoid suspicion. I am baffled. Not every 15 minutes. I, I remember it being in the news that he tried to bust his way through the glass doors. With his head. With his head. With his head. Wait, he tried or he succeeded? He succeeded. Oh, the, I, I, I don't believe that one. The, the truth... <laughs> The truth here is actually more weird and darker than what the movie put out. Galuli told the FBI that the original plan was to kill Nancy Kerrigan. Eckhart has said that he did Kerrigan a favor by talking Galuli out of that plan. There was also a plan to sever her Achilles tendon. And then there was a plan to break her landing leg and leave her gagged and duct taped in a hotel room. Galuli also told the FBI that Harding was in on the planning and was upset that Kerrigan had not already been disabled. Galuli and Eckert went to prison, as well as Stant and his uncle, Derek Smith, who was driving the driver for the assault. Harding was banned from figure skating pending a hearing, but the Olympics took place in, in between that decision and the hearing. So Harding went to the Olympics 
with this over her head. At the Olympics in Lillehammer, during a practice session where skaters share the ice, Harding and Kerrigan shared the ice during one of those uh, practice sessions. Kerrigan trolled Harding by wearing the same outfit she was wearing when she was attacked. That's some mighty good trolling. <laughs> that, that is some That's really... That's awesome. Yeah, I, I saw a picture today of uh, of Harding at the judges' podium. No, it was Kerrigan at the judges' podium and Harding skating right behind her, not more than six feet away from her, but almost kind of like cruising through like a shark. It was just... <laughs> Coming through there. Like Donald Trump during the debates with yeah, during the Clinton. debates with Clinton, the town hall. So so what I thought one thing I thought the movie did really, really well is a lot of what goes into the facts about this film. And there are facts that can be verified and there are facts that are perspective. And what this movie did really well is they had the characters break the fourth wall, which means they talk directly to the camera. According to the director, when a character breaks the fourth wall, that is your clue as an audience member. You are not seeing facts. You are seeing their perspective. And you'll notice that Jeff Galuli doesn't break the fourth wall until halfway through the film. And it's when he's meeting with Sean Eckert in the bar. And then after the attack happens on Nancy Kerrigan, they don't even bother to tell you whose perspective you're watching at that point. You don't have any characters breaking the fourth wall then, which means that all of these different uh, points of view are colliding together in what you, the viewer, are seeing. For whatever reason, I didn't mind the breaking of the fourth wall. I I will admit, in most movies, I can't stand it, and I don't know if that's just a personal thing or what, but... I second that. But, but... I I was genuinely surprised that I wasn't bothered by it because I believe that I've seen that happen over 20 times and I'm bothered by it every single time. So I think uh, kudos, kudos to breaking something that, you know, is not usually easily broken. I, I have a feeling, you know. Yeah, I... I, I like the breaking of the fourth wall, how it's used in this movie. Uh, another thing I liked, an interesting fact to add, is the relationship between Sean and his parents. And when Jeff comes over to the house, his parents are just always kind of there while they're planning things. And it's like they know what's going on. In reality, Sean's father was bragging to people that his son was involved with planning the attack on Nancy Kerrigan, which also helped bring the FBI in on them. Interesting. Rube comes up right now. <laughs> Definitely. I think yes. you do a biopic on, uh, what's his name again? The, the master. The, I, I hesitate to say the mastermind. Well, in his mind, he was a master. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And the guy who actually did the clubbing of Kerrigan, Shane Stent, he was in the same boat as well. He thought he was some counterintelligence mastermind as well. He even had the Guyans to try to get his assault charge removed from his record so he could join the Navy SEALs. <laughs> because that's what was holding him back. Because that was... <laughs> That was the, that was the ticket. <laughs> 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 oh, 
Yeah, but a felony charge can't be erased like that. Then it didn't happen. You guys got all quiet. Is this because the original plan was to kill Kerrigan? No. I just think it was I, I, that whole dynamic of uh, the parents being in the room oh, while they're. I, I just my mind all of a sudden went there and what that must be like. That's a whole nother movie. That's that's oh where my, my that's where my mind went. <laughs> Immediately, I'm thinking of the dynamics that must go on there. Yes, you'd like to see the sequel, which is the Eckhart household. Definitely. Oh, you can include the counterintelligence missions that Sean performed. I don't know. I don't know if I want to see those. <laughs> All right. Wasn't he claiming he was doing these sorts of things at the age of 16? Uh, his resume is really, really interesting. Uh, kind of a cross of James Bond and <laughs> something else. But, but yeah, his, his resume on the timeline has him running counterintelligence operations in Colombia when he was 16. Because, you know, people who run counterintelligence <laughs> operations often publicize their resumes. In Colombia? In Colombia. Is he fight, drug, fighting drug trafficking? And, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. So, uh, just want to do a check of the room here. Are we all still sympathetic to Tanya Harding? Yeah. I don't think it's a matter of being just sympathetic to Tanya Harding. I think it's a matter of having understanding of what drove her, what drove her ambition, what gave her that internal drive to essentially tell everyone to go fuck themselves. Because she was, I mean, she was fucking talented. I mean, she had a gift. It was ridiculous. I, I don't have sympathy for the consequences. I mean, you, you face consequences for your actions, regardless of your background. I do think they were probably harsher than if it had been a girl next door, Kerrigan type, whose competition had gotten out of hand and moved into felonious territory. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes me angrier than anything else, is, is that's where I think that class divide would have fallen if it had been someone doing something similar who had otherwise met their expectations. Uh, here's something else I wanted to talk about regarding um, the, the whole incident with Kerrigan. Uh, the public's response to it. Because there's a part in the movie where Tanya Harding blames the audience. And, and that should sting a little bit. Because I remember at the time this happened, it just immediately became comedic fodder immediately and my question is how much of it has to do with that took place in the world of figure skating if this thing happened in baseball if it happened in rugby if it happened in hockey if it happened in football would people have found it to be funny i, I don't think so 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 is it just people wanted to see the world of skating taken down it's so out of context mm -hmm. for figure skating that I think it's, it would be like if it happened in golf. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's so I think like football or basketball almost to be expected. There's mm -hmm. so much violence in, mm. included in those sports. They're baked in. It's put, and also the I mean the profile. You don't want a docile, you know, kind of like defacing athlete. Yeah. <laughs> you want to you want an aggressive fucking talented athlete and so I, I yeah it seems like it was just it just it, it doesn't seem like it, it, the decorum and it's the same thing with tennis 
right? Yeah. This one of these sports where there's it's it's this bougie sport where you have protocol and social regulations and but it's 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 a it's a sport. They're playing, but mm-hmm. okay. So I get that an attack on a skater is incongruous with the perception of the skating world, which should be surprising to people. That doesn't explain the sheer glee people got out of it. One of the sports columnists wrote that when she went to see the movie, the attack on Kerrigan had the audience laughing. I don't know, early 90s TV, late night TV irony. I don't know what what would explain that culturally. The only, th- I, I mean, my my perspective is that I, I think overall people view the skating world as being more perfect than it is, right? There aren't faults and flaws because of the competition that it is. You have to present grace. You have to present poise. You you have to present a style that is in line with what the skating world expects, and to some level, that is perfection, whether it be on the male or female side. And and I think when something like this happens that is incongruous to that presentation, then, like I said, it should be a surprise, but I don't understand the sheer glee people get out of it. I feel like in the movie as well, Nancy... Kerrigan wasn't portrayed so much so you didn't have that emotion I kept waiting to see the only time we saw her was when she was partying with Tanya so Mm -hmm. we didn't as a viewer have that connection have that sympathy to her it's like she almost didn't exist and I kept waiting for her to have a role not a huge role but larger than it was so I think maybe it was a disconnection from the character and that might have had something to do with it. But I certainly did not laugh. And I think limiting the character was a choice of the director because he said that having to put Kerrigan through this again was really, really difficult to do. So I think just by having her in there for only the attack and not much else, that was his way of trying to limit the effect it would have on her, which even as it is, she was being asked by reporters, have you seen the I, Tanya movie yet? I, I think there's a few different things going on there. I think people found a certain amount of glee in it now and then because Tanya Harding refused to meet their aesthetic expectations. She refused to change who she was and good on her for that. This gave them the opportunity to say, see what happens when someone like that gets to enter our world. Mm-hmm. I remember when it happened, and I would have been about 25, it was fodder for late night. People were making fun of Nancy Kerrigan mm-hmm. and how she responded when she fucking got whacked on the knee and was assaulted in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. They were laughing at her. And I, I, part of me kind of gets it, but it's, I would, you, I get the temptation, but it's sick and it's debasing and laughing at someone about how they responded in a moment of crisis and pain is just, it's gross. Yeah, and, and for all the things I, Tanya, played for humor, the attack itself wasn't one of them. No, and I give them credit for that. And I would say one last thing, though. 
I think it made a momentary point of Nancy Kerrigan knew how to play the game. And we all learned that when we saw her in that god-awful parade and she had turned to someone and said, this is the corniest thing I've ever done. She got caught on a hot mic. And everyone was so disappointed in her for doing that as though this was somehow unforgivably egregious. But there's that moment where she's partying with Tanya that you mentioned. and But she knows how to play that game. Before anyone saw that piece in the movie and outside of her calling the Disney parade corny, mm-hmm. no one would ever suspect her of being anything but an ice skating princess. She doesn't smoke dope. She doesn't drink. She's not partying late at night with Tanya. She is a good girl and knows what she is supposed to be doing. Now, again, do we know if those, because I don't know much about it, was she actually part, like, did she party or did she not? Did it, like, like I know it showed that scene. How accurate is that scene? Do we know? Not very accurate. Uh, okay. They did room together a couple times, but people say they went shopping or they went out to get something to eat, but there's no evidence that they were partying in the room together, that or, they were that close. Or that she even is a partier, per se. Yeah, can't can't okay. say that's that's unverified. And regarding okay. the Disney parade, I just happened to read something today on that because what Kerrigan says is that she wasn't referring to the parade itself. What she was referring to is her agent told her to wear her medals, and she said, "My parents raised me that you don't brag about things," and to her, it wasn't comfortable to be wearing her medal standing on the float. The medals were an achievement that she did, but she didn't feel comfortable having them around her neck and doing that. And that's what she was referring to as the corniest thing she's done, not being in the parade with Mickey Mouse. She had great PR people. Mm-hmm. That's that's just my personal view. I, I have nothing against her. I think she's great. But just in that situation, working in, working in uh, Los Angeles and seeing and hearing, and there's some great PR, PR people out there. Yeah. No, that is that is a that's that's just my instinct. That's my instinct. I don't know. I have no idea. I'm sure she's fabulous, but that just seems like a PR move. Yeah, and I don't think it's as much about them smoking the pot in the room about whether or not she was actually a partner. I think it is that piece that she had that image. She She had had that image. I mean, she was working with Campbell's. Come on, let's get let's get serious, everybody. Yeah, she knew how to play the game, and I think that's what that moment. was meant to show is that she has that team that you're talking about more than whether anyone cares that she was smoking weed. And that's why I love Tanya. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, I'm telling you, that's what it comes down to. I, I second that motion. The, at least as, it, again, as it's presented in the movie and as the facts have been laid out, there's something, you know, of course, what happened was atrocious, but to me, there's something eminently respectable about thumbing your nose at an establishment and carving your own path mm-hmm. and not having people and not having a team and saying, and I'm, still, I'm doing and still making it that, that far, like incredibly far. Still... I'm almost even surprised you even did make it that far. Mm-hmm. I have a quick question. Fact versus fiction. When she goes several times to ask the judges, what is it that you want from me? And the judges say, you are not the girl next door image. Is there any truth to that at all? I mean, obviously there is, but is there any recorded facts? No, the only instance is the comment the judge made about her costumes, which didn't take place on the ice as they show on the movie. It actually took place backstage. 
but but that's the only indication directly. There's there's nothing verified that she met with one of the judges in the parking lot okay. to ask him. Okay, so and for me, where my sympathy might lie with Tanya would depend on how much she was really involved with the assault that happened with Nancy Kerrigan. If all she did was pass along the information of where she's training in order for threatening letters to be sent, that's still a felony. I mean, she still did that, so that's completely on her. If she had full knowledge that they were planning on kidnapping her or or harming her in some way, and as Sean said, was upset it hadn't happened soon enough, That that's a completely different thing. I actually saw an interview that she did, and I was waiting for them to ask if she knew or not, but she still maintains that she knew nothing. I don't know yeah. if that's truth or fiction, and I guess we'll never know, but it's interesting that she holds true, the, true to that. Like, she hasn't changed, but still, I mean, who, who's to say? Yeah. Well, all right. So when it comes to a letter grade for truth, A through F for I, Tanya, what do you say? Letter grade for truth? I would give it a B plus and not just for the actual facts as how they were presented, but the feel they gave to each of the characters. Okay, Diana, A through F. I would go B. A B. I'm going to go actually A minus. A minus. I think that's the first time you hit A. You didn't even hit A with Raging Bull, did you? <laughs> different, no. different movie. Different movie. Wow. Hey. Um, no, I, and I'm going to say that simply because they included the the head smashing through the glass. <laughs> that's you cannot you cannot create that, that glass anymore. must have been cracked. <laughs> that glass was already half cracked if that happened. <laughs> And I'm going to go B on this. I, I think it's, uh, you know, when you look at it, the the facts are the facts. But let's remember what's presented is also perspective. Mm-hmm. And those perspective are where things get really, really muddy. And uh, it's hard to tell. But I think that made it true more than factual. And I think sometimes that is just as important. All right. Well, thank you, Don, for doing this. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It was great. Thank you. Now is the time when we fact check ourselves. We come to these conversations prepared, but sometimes we find ourselves going in a direction that we weren't prepared for, or we mention some bad information, or we just completely make stuff up. For instance, I couldn't possibly know that Diana would want to know about the script writer and what other types of movies he has written. That person is Steven Rogers. He was the script writer for I, Tanya, and his credits include Love the Coopers, P.S. I Love You, Kate and Leopold, Stepmom, and Hope Floats. All of these films can be classified as tearjerkers, which makes it seem like he broke out of the mold to do I, Tanya. His internet movie database page does also mention that he is a longtime friend of Alice and Janney. That wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere except Spreaker. We don't do Spreaker. You can find all of the sources we use to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash itanya.com. 
I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. For I, Tanya, you can find the footage of the routine where she first performed the triple axle. How are we doing on this project? Send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode, and we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.